You're listening to Opera Innovations, a podcast brought to you by ABA Technologies. This month on the Thought Leader Series, we are speaking with Dr. Kent Johnson and how he came about the idea of Morningside Academy decades and decades ago. We are here with Dr. Kent Johnson, and I'm very excited to hear this story. So to start out with, where did you come from? (laughs) <laughs> and how did you get to where you are today? Let's, uh, uh, when I was uh, nine years old, <laughs> that's where I'm going to start. <laughs> I, uh, I was very concerned in school. When I was in third grade, I was concerned in school that um, the teacher would call on students like me uh, and an- who could answer questions for the most part and then move on. And I'd look around the room and I'd see kids who clearly not understanding it the way I was understanding it. I remember a a boy, Stephen in particular, who I used to help after school. And uh, I asked my teacher, so how, you know, how, how do you know that the other, when you call on me or how do you know the others have learned what you're talking about? And she said, well, they haven't learned it as well as you have perhaps, but they, uh, you know, everybody tries their best and they learn as much as they can and that's all we can hope for. So <laughs> I thought, well, okay. So I told my mother about this, uh, told my mother the story and she, she kind of got my concern about the children around me. And she said, well, you know, sh- your sister isn't, uh, needs some help in math. Why don't you, would you like to, to work with Sean too. And I said, well, let's ask Sean, would you like to work on math? And I said, uh, she said, yeah. So we, we, she learned a lot of math. And then my uh, mother talked to other people in the family and my aunt said, well, you know, uh, Andre is trouble with writing, you know, could you help Andre? So, you know, so I, my, I come from a background of entrepreneurial spirits. And so, you know, this is prior to the kind of the get on the bandwagon of the corporate uh, express, you know, because it's a little earlier than that. That was, there were some big companies, but by and large people that work for smaller places. I lived in Connecticut, uh, uh, a town called Milford, Connecticut, about 90 minutes from New York City up the, up the, up the line. Uh, anyway, we were all entrepreneurs in my family going way back. So here I was like making, you know, I charged 10 cents a session and here I was you know, <laughs> making some money. And, uh, and then I decided, you know, I'm going to make a flyer. So I wrote a flyer and I distributed it all around the neighborhood. And uh, I got, by the time I was 12, I had tutored about 40 kids in the neighborhood. And I did, I did my tutoring. So my father, we had a two car garage and he gave me one, gave me one of the stalls and said, you can do it in here. You can put your stuff here. And, uh, and then I would do it in the backyard in the nice weather. We had a lot of round tables. My grandfather got some more round tables for me and kids would sit around the tables and, uh, you know, uh, they didn't all come at once, of course. Uh, but, you know, some days there were, you know, 12 or 15 kids because 
you know, I could put them in different tables, you know, I could like, well, you guys will we'll work on rhyming. So you guys sit over here and then you guys need long division. You guys go over here. <laughs> and so, and so uh, I had my own little homogeneous groups uh, of kids. Well, and you've, was, you've been doing this for decades is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it was better to make four dimes an hour than one dime an hour. Right. So <laughs> I was like, okay, this worked. I could, you know, provide the same kind of service to a smaller group as I could to one-on-one. I, in fact, it, it worked a little more systematically with one on, with four than one, because in one, you can get lost down a trail that you won't if you have like four. So I, I remember that feeling like, oh, this is a little more organized <laughs> than when, when you try to go on the roller coaster with one. So I, so I did that till I was uh, 12 years old. I, uh, and the neighborhood in my town in Milford, the neighborhood I lived in was Morningside. So that's where my school name comes from, <laughs> Morningside Academy. So I had my own uh, clunky version of uh, what I do now. Morningside um, gave me some kind of a framework, you know, and a lifelong interest. I did, uh, but I, you know, my favorite television program was um, Spanky and Our Gang. So I don't know if you know that program. I don't. <laughs> Okay. Well, it was a it was a sitcom, and it was a bunch of little little children. Actually, quite multiracial for the time. Although a lot of racist kinds of comments made in, in a joking manner at the time. We're talking, cart. We're talking about episodes from the, you know, the fifties, and you know, some. I, there was a show called The Little Rascals that preceded it, and that really was what came out in the forties. So there was some legacy of this, but this group of kids and Spanky, when Spanky and our gang, when that iteration showed up, this group of children uh, figured out ways to enact adult activities as children. So they would, you know, they decide to have to do a school. So they would set up the, their yard or the, or the, 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 the woods in the back of their house, you know, they'd get it all set up like a school or, or they'd have an office, you know, and then there was the boss and the workers, you know, and, and, and so it was very uh, Rube Goldberg kind of, you know, put your, let's, let's, you know, and then the neighbors would come and, you know, knock on the door and talk to the owner and of the shop and all this sort of thing. So they did all, and then they would have dinner parties like their, like their parents did. So it was my favorite show for sure. So I was all set to do like Spanky and our gang with this little program of mine in the garage. So that was an inspiration. I, uh, I often will ask people, who their uh, their icons are like? Who's your icon from a fairy tale or from a television program or a movie? Like, who when you were a child did you really identify with, uh, and how how did that influence your trail? Uh, or have you thought about those people? So that's an interesting exercise I do with when grad students come out in the summer to our summer institute. I will often have this exercise about talking about our icons from our childhood. Anyway, so that was kind of the impetus for this 
program. My mother was the principal, right? So she of Morningside School, and um, and so uh, so I just so that that's really kind of the background of. Uh, I returned to I, I I in high school I got interested in constitutional history and comparative government and so I went to Georgetown University in Washington D.C. where you know you'd be right in the in the thick of it and I thought I'd be an ambassador. I remember thinking that's that's kind of where I might wind up as being an ambassador for some president in some country. Uh, and uh, but lo and behold, so. The freshman, the summer before freshman year at Georgetown, uh, we got a letter from the math department. I got a letter from the uh, math department chair. And the chair, she said, uh, you have, you know, you, you have to pick a math course for your first uh, semester. And uh, there's five options. And the one option particularly interested me, and it was, um, it was in calculus and uh, they, the course, the way they described it was they took the material in the calculus course and they broke it into small units and you studied each small unit and then you went to class and had an interview with a proctor who would, uh, would tell you how prepared you were to take the quiz or not and help you be prepared. And then you take a quiz and if you got 90% or greater, then you could move to the next unit. And if you didn't, no problem. You could study some more and get some more help and, and then try again. And you could try as many times as you wanted and you go at your own pace. And I thought, this is like, that sounds like a really fun class to take. So I took it and I kind of zoomed through that. I love the, I love the arrangement, you know. Uh, I remember asking the teacher, I said, Barbara, how did you invent this? This is so amazing. And she said, well, no, I didn't invent it. I learned about it from this, from this psychology professor, Charles Furster, and he's over in the psych department. And there's other people like that over there. And uh, you can go ask them your questions and you could learn a bit more about it if this interests you, but will you be a proctor for me next year? And I said, sure. So, so I, I did serve as a proctor in the second semester uh, class where the new students were coming. So we're basically talking about the Keller plan or personalized system of instruction. It's right out of behavior. That awfully familiar. All right. So here I am and I love this method. And I went over to the psych department and they showed me that, well, you know, this is eventually they, you know, I talked to different people and I said, well, you know, this is, this is part of a bigger uh, idea. And there's this guy, B.F. Skinner, you know, and he has this bigger idea about psychology. Uh, and so there I was, I mean, I, you know, carpe diem for me. So I, here I am like, okay, no more. I'm not going to be an ambassador now. I'm going to study this, this psychology here. <laughs> and people would say to me, Oh, you might make you're going to major. In, well, you listen a lot. You're you're a good listener to people, so you'll you'll probably be a good psychologist. So I said, well, I maybe I will, maybe I won't, but but I do want to study this, and so so that's my that's where I you know where I went is uh, studying behavior analysis. Georgetown at the time didn't have graduate students, um, 
you know, the Jesuits were much more interested in, in, in teaching and learning than research. So at the time, we undergraduates got the chance to be like the grad students, you know, so we were the teaching assistants and the research assistants and all this. So this whole thing that happens in uh, psych departments in grad school played out for us as juniors and seniors at Georgetown. So that was really lucky uh, that I went there. Uh, even though I didn't study government, you know, I studied behavior analysis. And then I, um, then I was thinking about where will I go to graduate school? And I Psychology Today, the magazine at that time, had just come out, the new issue, which is very timely for me, was, was called Shapers at Work. So this was in 1972. And you might look at, go to the library, go to a library and see if you can find this. It's so fascinating. Maybe I, uh, I probably have a copy of some of the articles from the issue, but it was all about this new field of applied behavior analysis. And the whole thing was kind of like your psych today. I don't know if you're familiar with that magazine, but it's kind of this flashy kind of approach to bringing psychology to the masses. And so they had this whole thing about applied behavior analysis and they had 42 behavior shapers at work, which was one of the articles. And so they, they'd have a little picture and then a column, which would describe what that person was doing. And it was all the professors, you know, across all the different departments doing behavior analysis. So it was like right there in my lap. I'm like, oh, well, here's where all the people are. Where do you want to go? So uh, there was a woman, uh, the person that stood out to me the most was Beth Solzarazaroff. She was, well, Psychology Today, I think, called her the queen of token economy. So Beth Solzer, who had been a former president, who became a president of ABBA, I went and studied with her because she had worked with, she had been a first grade teacher in Harlem. And uh, before she married her husband, Ed Solzer, who was a behavior analyst, a therapist, an adult clinical therapist at SIU, Seattle uh, Southern Illinois University. Uh, and so then she married him and then studied behavior analysis and got into the field. But she was a, she was a first grade teacher. So I, I knew that she was somebody that, you know, really was, you know, part of the trenches before she went to school. And, uh, and so I learned all about the token economy and she learned all about PSI and college teaching from me. Um, and so it was a very mutual exchange. You know, the 60s was very, uh, there was a lot of horizontal, you know, this whole junior colleague model where you're really invited into your professor's kind of work and serve as some kind of a junior kind of member of the, of the group, you know, the community. It was very community oriented. And I, and I, I really took to that model. I know the junior colleague model still works among many professors at Western Michigan and then certainly at UNR, uh, University of Nevada, Reno, and also down in University of North Texas, still still have this more of a horizontal way of uh, help, working with their grad students. So I so Beth was a great, she was just a super advisor. Uh, there's gonna be a new book coming out that Ruth Ann Rayfeld is going to edit uh, with some others uh, about women in women who are practicing um, uh, professionals and how, how does that work out for women? 
and I know Beth will have a kind of a chapter in there about as a senior kind of woman. I think Beth's 90 now, 91, 90 years old, something like that. Uh, I, I haven't visited her in a while, but we st we still keep in touch. She was great. She was kind of like my mother, big sister in grad school, you know, because none of my family was part of academia. I mean, the 60s were also a time where a lot of people were upwardly mobile. So lots of people were, go were going to college for the first time, uh, if anyone in their families. That was me. My family cheered me on. I didn't know anything about going to college or my father had a GED. My mom had a, a high school diploma and uh, they were doing just fine. All those people were in the middle class at that time. You know, you could earn a good living. Uh, uh, I went to college. Uh, they cheered me on for that uh, and studied uh, at Georgetown and then with Beth uh, Salzer. And then I took my first job uh, after that at Northeastern University in Boston. And I, I don't want to spend that. I was it was a very disappointing experience. I I didn't like department politics. I didn't like uh, I didn't like a lot of things. Uh, and I, I'll just leave it at that. So I, I left and I, I went to a, a school in the area outside of Boston called the Fernald School. And it was, a, it was an institution for, um, for mental retarded people, as they said then, you know, which became DD and autism. And um, this was the tail end of the institutionalization movement. So uh, within 10 years, none of these people lived on in a institution. They went into group homes and voila, you, you, you know the scene now. It's very, it was very different then. Um, and I worked there um, and uh, uh, I, was, I, I had some interest in developmental disabilities and autism, but, but really, my heart was really back with the struggling learners uh, who did not have a disability per se, but needed help in school to keep up in general ed. And that's because, so I, I wound my way back to, I decided I was gonna move from, uh, I went out to visit some friends in Seattle, wherever that was. I thought Seattle was kind of like the end of the earth to this guy from Massachusetts at the time, you know, people didn't travel quite as much as they do now. And so, and so I went to visit them and it, you know, I had left Boston, it was 42 degree, 42 inches of, of um, snow had fallen in 24 hours. And it was just the whole, the whole city, Boston was just frozen. Uh, and so I took a plane out to visit my friends from Georgetown, I had moved to Seattle. And it was 70 degrees in Seattle. And they were like, now this isn't the way it is in March normally. But I just fell in love with the, with the, uh, with the, at the, the, the climate uh, in Seattle and with the, with the culture and with the, with the politics, with everything just felt right. So I said, you know what, I'm, I'm gonna pick up where I left off when I was 12 and I'm gonna start a school. And so uh, it, here I am, 29 years old, 1980. I'm, so here I am, okay, 
going to start a school. So <laughs> started in my living room and, you know, worked up <laughs> from there uh, and uh, took, uh, did odd jobs, I'd call them. You know, I did some consulting for the for the uh, human service department for the state. You know, I did some trainings in group homes for uh, for staff working with adult DD people. You know, I did whatever I could find. I'd still, I did uh, uh, that kind of work that I knew I could do, but I wasn't particularly interested just to earn enough money to, you know, keep the, keep the balls rolling. A couple of visits that I made before I started the school were really important. One was going down to Oregon to meet, and I met Sigrid Engelman and Doug Carnine at the University of Oregon. And they, that's the summer of 78, they had their, I went to their fourth annual direct instruction kind of training week in July. And I learned a lot about those programs, which, which really helped me see that it's not unrealistic to go start a school because they've written all these commercially available programs that looked pretty close to programmed instruction, not exactly. And Engelman wasn't a behaviorist uh, by any stretch of the imagination. People tried to typecast him that way. He'd always push back on that. That's not my... That's not my philosophy or my background, but otherwise he was, he was, uh, he caught the wave in Illinois. You know, Tom Gilbert uh, was a, uh, was a behavior analyst who was in Illinois uh, at the same time that, um, and Champaign, Illinois, same time that Engelman was there and Wes Becker and Sue Markle was at the University of uh, Illinois at Chicago Circle. So it was a little, it was a hotbed of people interested in instruction, you know, what's become a whole field uh, uh, of instruction. And they dovetailed off of program instruction, all of them by and large. In fact, Engelman's direct instruction borrowed Tom Gilbert's uh, model guide release uh, approach. You know, Tom said, demonstrate, guide, release. And Engelman said, model, lead, test. And so, you know, so that whole framework uh, was laid on top of the kinds of programs that Engelman was writing that were really so good. And, and that became direct instruction. But it was in its fairly early stages when I was uh, looking at it in the late 70s. It was, it was solid, but there, there was still a lot more refinement to go, but I learned that stuff. And then I, another visit I made was to Michael Maloney's Quincy Learning Center in Canada. And Michael Maloney was big in precision teaching. Uh, I didn't know anything about, you know, in fact, precision teaching, I didn't learn about precision teaching till after I got my PhD. I mean, there was no sign of, PT, anything, standard acceleration chart, anywhere in graduate school at that time. It was all in schools with principals and teachers. And this guy, this kind of crazy guy, Ogden Lindsley, you know, who was a behavior analyst and worked for Skinner, but he wasn't much for academics uh, and academia. Uh, he, he was uh, kind of put this 
precision teaching model together, I went to see Michael. He was probably the first one to combine direct instruction and precision teaching into a kind of a coherent classroom system, if you will, for learning. And so I went to, uh, I went to visit him and uh, he also <laughs> knew, he also was very clever about how do you keep yourself alive? How do you move the money around? How do you make the money go around so you can stay alive while you're trying to start your own kind of business? <laughs> I mean, still today, that's a question that people oh, yeah. have, too, Very even today. Very important. So, so basically, I'm an educational psychologist by, by interests and training. Uh, that's the degree I got with Beth was in the psych department, in PhD in educational psychology, and that's my area. And behavior analysis is my operating principles. So when people say, when people identify themselves, that's what I say. I don't say I'm a behavior analyst first, when I, because that's what I think of myself as an educational psychologist whose operating framework and principles are, uh, are behavior principles and behavior analysis. And so um, there used to be a lot more of us at, in the obvious world like that, not necessarily ed psych, but primarily from a discipline where this discipline of behavior analysis becomes their operating principle. Uh, and now there's people who directly see their, who they are professionally as behavior analysts. So that's a, that's a, that's a change over time. Um, and also a lot more people uh, were doing work outside of developmental disabilities and autism. Uh, than now. So our field has become very uh, truncated, uh, but we can come back to, you know, what I, where I see the field, but let me go back to my, uh, my story here. So I started, um, I started Morningside Academy um, in 1980, and it's still going, and, you know, I'm the executive director, but I've been pulling back lately, um, I just turned 70 this spring. Oh my God. I like just like <laughs> really? <laughs> is, that, is that really possible? My mother's 90. She took me out to, for my birthday lunch. She was like, look at us here. Look at your 90-year-old mother is is uh is taking out her 70-year-old son. <laughs> so we feel That's very awesome. we feel very blessed and uh and we're both so like not what that number seems to mean to others. So anyway. You are uh, your goals of what <laughs> I hope to be. <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope I'm an inspiration yes. to you. Uh, and so you, so, um, so what else could I tell? So uh, I just, I liked the fuller field, but notice also ed psych and also the whole programmed instruction world and the whole instruction world that um, I feel these days is not um, so readily available to, uh, you were lucky to work with Jessica. So you had some of that framework that I'm talking about, uh, but the kind of the in-depth understanding of program instruction, the whole area of instructional design, there's so many, there's no, you know, there's instructional design courses in, in various departments around the country and they're using Sue Markle's 
uh, books, mostly because Joe Lang and I won't didn't shut up about Markle uh, during ABBA. In fact, in the 80s, I would buy, I would bring a box of her books to ABBA. And I, when I went to a meeting room, I'd put it on the table and I'd sell them to people <laughs> who, who could buy these, uh, these books by Tiemann and Markle and Markle. Oh my God. So I think, so Joe and Joe didn't get all salespeople personally about it, but he otherwise would talk about it. Paul and Dronus, a few of us would talk a lot about program instruction in the eighties uh, at ABBA in the seventies, a lot, a lot, a lot. And so now you see uh, uh, from that period, you see departments are using those books still, uh, uh, but there's maybe one class, maybe two. It's hard to, uh, to that, you know, it takes a long time to learn instructional design. It's not like this one thing you learn in one course and you're all, and you're an instructional designer. Yeah. Uh, it's a very, it's super analytical, especially when you get into breaking things down and put, and putting them in a sequence and in hierarchies. And the, when you're trying to go beyond teaching just one task or one concept, you know, that's one thing. But to put a program together is a very different thing. That's, the thing about instructional design is it will alter, if, if you take more instructional design principles to bear on that work that you just described, it will alter the order of the presentation of the material in the first place, right? So rather than simply, you know, write guided notes across a chapter in a book, it's like you start to see, oh, you know, the 12th thing I put should have been second, you know? And you start seeing the, the gradual emergence of, you know, uh, logically based sequences of instruction. The people, tennis teachers know perfectly well that you match the, the student up with someone who's just a little bit better. You know, you don't put the expert with the novice. Uh, that's just not, music, music teachers know this, PE teachers know it. It's so, somehow we're in this magical dualism where, you know, when it becomes verbal, then it's different than motor. And therefore, everything is different about cognitive and learning than motor learning. And it's not, that's not true. I mean, we don't need the dualism. We just, just all these principles apply to behavior, you know, like the topography doesn't change the nature of the business that we're at here. So anyway, that's another soapbox I go on. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay, sorry. I know I took us way no, 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 off of that no, tangent, but starting Morningside no, and getting going. Morningside children. So this is, so Morningside is about the forgotten 40%, right? So we're trying to capture uh, a much broader swath of kids than the tail end of the distribution of 5% are disabled and all this sort of thing. So we're trying to capture, if some educators talk about tier two or, you know, how those are our learners are gen ed kids who uh, struggle to stay there. And, but once they get the wave, you know, if you could put those foundations in, these kids fly and they're very creative. You know, the ADHD kids are the most creative kids going because they, they uh, can shift their attention across 
a number of different, uh, uh, they can have a number of different foci. If they learn how to manage that multiple foci that they are so adept at uh, tuning into, if they can manage that, learn how to manage that, they're the most creative people because they put two and two together like nobody's business. They're not just strict linear logical people. And so I love working with those. Uh, those are my darlings. Uh, and I love middle school because you can it's be very impressed. You can impress the middle school schoolers. You can really make a big difference with them. Uh, and you don't, and people are afraid of the middle school kids because they, just say what's on their mind, right? They don't have this, uh, their editing isn't, uh, they, they haven't learned to edit, you know, they haven't had enough punishment for <laughs> saying things that someone might not like. Oh, my uh, dad was a middle school teacher for about 25 years. Okay, so you- So <laughs> I've heard plenty. Right, and none of it ever offends me. It's just kind of like, this is how they, you know, I get this, you know, I really, I get it. Uh, but I, I really like working with them. Anyway, middle school is my favorite. Um, those are my favorite kids. But uh, so so now, then now we have about 150 schools around the U.S. and Canada who who do part or all of uh, what we do at Morningside Academy. So Morningside Academy has become a uh, a kind of a lab school for investigating best practices and changing. And it's also become a demonstration site. So people wanna see what does a school look like uh, that's all run on uh, behavior principles. Well, you can come and see uh, what it looks like. Um, and so kind of that's where, that's kind of where I have my stakes in the ground. Thank you for listening to this episode of Thought Leaders. Come back next month as we continue to talk with Dr. Kent Johnson about where he sees the field going. And as always, if you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us at operantinnovations at abatechnologies.com.